0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Future Imagined, a Foresight podcast dedicated to futures thinking. I'm Joe Lepore, I lead Foresight for North America as part of Miles Wrigley's Global Foresight Team. first episode of season three and what we're calling the future of series where in the first two seasons we explored a variety of themes influencing consumer behavior prospecting about their impact in the future in this new season we are leveling up and focusing on big strategic topics of future influence and we're starting off with the future of america For this conversation, we've got two bold, innovative business leaders, but before we get to that, I've brought in the Insights Director for North America, Adam Conley, to introduce the topic. Hi, Adam.
1: Hi, Joe. Thanks for bringing me in to introduce this meaty topic.
0: So when we talk about the future of America, what's the first thing that pops into your mind?
1: Change. Things constantly changing at a rapid speed, for good and for bad. The ability to make our lives easier to complicate our lives in ways that we wouldn't have expected. The change curve has just really driven up to a different level, and I completely expect that to continue.
0: Yeah, and a lot of that change is driving some real disruption, whether it's disruptive thinking or policies or innovation. And within that disruption, you've got uncertainty and unknowns, contradictions, and as part of that, you're sort of reshaping a lot of the meaningful conversations that are being had by people within the culture of america
1: yeah i don't know if anybody ever felt comfortable (laughs) that they would know how the world was and how it was changing but it seems like there's new things that bring in different cultural elements different demographic elements different diverse thoughts that set up a country that's very dynamic not to mention the people that exist within it and what they're looking for as they try to pursue what sets up their happiness.
0: It's a really big, complex and meaty topic, particularly coming out of this decade and even so the last two years. I think when I told our guests that the topic was the future of America, they thought I was joking. (laughs) One of the things that I think we're going to really dive into is the voices of influence, some of the things being said and some of the things not being said. And what you should come away from at the end of the episode is hopefully not a prediction of what will happen in 2030 in America, but a deeper understanding of who is driving change inside of America and how we can be a part of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the future of America, I mean, I get why somebody would react to that and say, no chance. (laughs) It's an interesting space to be diving into, you know, with the realization that everything is constantly shifting, but we also see some of those shifts now. So if you can start to see the things that are gonna influence it, you can speak to those and say, hey, those are gonna continue define it and distill it down into specific themes and I think that's a nice starting point to get into what is going to influence where we will be.
0: Mm, Well said. See the shifts and try to influence them as we co-create the future that we want to be a part of. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks for having me, Joe. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited too, so let's get into it.
2: I'm Anton Vincent. I am the president of Mars Wrigley, North America, the largest single unit in all of Mars. I have the pleasure, and I would even say the honor of being accountable for the really heart and soul of how the business was originally created with the chocolate and what became the gun and mints and other variety of snacks businesses as well. I'm proud to lead over 7,000 associates from Mars Wrigley North America. And like many companies, we're in the midst of transformation. And that is exciting. It's exhilarating. And it's forcing us to ask real critical questions, not about just who we are and who we want to be when we grow up, but do that in the context of the region that we're asked to lead with the U.S being a big part of it
3: my name is ujwal i'm a cultural anthropologist and the co-founder and ceo of motive base i run a company that is unique in the sense that we get to live our passion every single day because we get to apply a deep anthropological model onto the study of human beings and in particular we get to wake up every morning and ask the question what do things mean not what are people talking about but rather what do they mean when they say something
2: And congratulations on what I think is just a fantastic podcast. I know we've had conversation in the past and I'm just happy to be a guest and I'm happy that we are going into another season as well.
0: Wonderful. So invigorating, exhilarating, exciting. The expectation has been set and I think it'll be a fab conversation. And I'm going to start with a personal reflection because you might have noticed I'm an Australian coming in and talking about the future of America. And we've just come out of celebrating the 4th of July and America's 245th birthday. I moved to the U.S. just in time for the 4th of July, which I was really looking forward to. It's one of those events alongside Thanksgiving that I really wanted to experience firsthand here. Growing up, I had this image of America as being incredibly sophisticated bold, adventurous, no-nonsense, leader of the world, and of Americans as being incredibly proud to be American. The question that I get asked the most since I've been here is, what is America like versus what you had expected? And my personal reflection since I've been here is that it is all of those things, but it's also humble. Americans are the first to point out their flaws, where they need to be better and do better, and the first to defend them. Anton, as a very down-to-earth and humble leader, as I perceive you to be, and I think a lot of people do, how do you balance that necessity to be authentic, genuine, down-to-earth and humble with being bold and taking a strong stance on things?
2: I think just as, as a leader, particularly of a leader of a, in this case of a large organization, you're always in the middle of two things. You're always in the middle of your current reality. And you're also trying to plan for your future, you know, with the assumption that you actually want to be around and thriving for the future. And so I, I think one of the ways that I try to do that is to make sure, certainly with my teams and to a certain extent, our organizations, to make sure that we are really clear in the worlds and the universe that, that we are asked to exist and to make sure not just that our, our current and our past informs us, but making sure that we have an opinion and some intentionality around what the future holds and how do we want to play into that future as well. And I I think as leaders, we have to be able to operate in that duality. In many cases, it it can be actually quite difficult because our human minds are not wired to do that. Our human minds are wired to process and deal with what's in front of us. Our human minds are wired to survive. Our human minds are not wired to imagine a future and sort of be on that track while we're trying to be in the moment. That's a lot to ask our human brains and human minds to do as well. And so I think certainly from a business perspective and certainly from uh, an organizational development and growth perspective, it is in common to make sure that there is somebody or some people who have a much more holistic view of my words existence in multiple dimensions. And so I, I think that's how I try to keep a certainly an intellectual understanding around how I'm trying to move myself as a leader, but also how I'm trying to move our organization. And we hope that it has an impact that gives the business
3: direction. I think, first of all, it's phenomenal to hear you say that, Anton. And this duality is what fascinates us as anthropologists at Motive Base. No matter what language we speak, we know that words have meaning and meaning changes with context. But somehow we forget that when it comes to ideas, concepts, issues, trends, whatever it is that affects our businesses, affects our colleagues, our lives. And I think that's what's interesting to me. And in particular, in the modern context, especially post-pandemic, fingers crossed, post-Floyd, there's a lot going on, but it's certainly making the room for us to develop a better understanding of the fact that meaning isn't fixed, meaning isn't singular, and it opens the door for us to have dialogues that we couldn't before.
0: So it feels like there's been definitely an introspection inside of America, particularly over the last few years, but I would say probably the last decade. And I think a little bit of what you touched on, Anton, around the sort of existential re-evaluation of you know, the identity of Americans, the things that we want to stand for, the different perspectives that we want to have. It's obviously led to a lot of big stances by companies and by brands around the action that they want to take and, and what they want to stand for. These words that companies and brands are using around inclusivity, diversity, equality, purpose, do these words give us a good shortcut to positive action or are they losing their meaning when they become a buzzword?
3: That's a brilliant question. We were recently studying the word diversity in the context of hiring practices. And one of the things we found is that from the consumer's perspective, from the citizen's perspective, it has become a word that is now seen in a fair bit of negative light, not because citizens don't want diversity, but because they think it's a word that's used sort of like a cop out, so to speak. Because they've gotten so used to organizations saying, hey, look, we increased our people of color by X percent or women in senior roles by X percent. And that's sort of the standard narrative that consumers have gotten used to. And now that's created a negative set of meanings with it. And so as a result, what the consumer is looking for, what people are looking for is more concrete evidence. One of the first questions that was asked was, how many people of color are in decision-making roles in the organization? This is from the consumer, and I think this is phenomenal. Are you open to hiring people who don't have the traditional set of qualifications that your organization has required? For example, MBAs from certain universities, all of these are, of course, questions of privilege because until you open your door to hiring people that don't come from those backgrounds, you don't truly open your door to diversity of opinion, of life experience, of privilege, and so on and so forth. So, maybe it's because through the pandemic, we've all been stuck at home and stuck in front of our computers more than we have in the past, but the amount of knowledge that the average consumer has on these topics has increased significantly, and I think that's a phenomenal positive development for all of us.
2: (laughs) Just a brilliant point that he made, you know, diversity in itself has dimension. Many times the general public sort of narrows that dimension. America is a very young country. 245 years is nothing in the context of time. We're still trying to figure this thing out. And one of the very principles that we founded America on was this whole concept of freedom in a sort of broader context. And freedom is a diverse concept. <laughs> About seven years ago, I had the fortune of giving the commencement address from my graduate school MBA class. And I struggled for a while because you know, it's my alma mater. I want to make sure I come off right and you know, be impressive, inspirational, all those things. And I struck upon a pretty basic concept. I believe America is in its fourth reconstruction. You start off at 1776 and go to the Civil War in 1865, Emancipation Proclamation. You go all the way to civil rights 100 years later in 1965, and you find us now 50 years later. We are a much more diverse country by almost every dimension. We're in the middle of this 245-year experiment that we're still trying to, quote-unquote, perfect.
0: It's a really good perspective that you're bringing there, and I love the word that you used around freedom. There's a monument to veterans just around the corner from me, actually, and it says, freedom is not free, so we're still fighting for those things that we think are needing to be progressed on. Which, well, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are around consumer or human expectations in relation to all of this. Because is this expectation of transparency and progress and action taken as too slow or too fast for people? How are they grappling with all of this in their minds?
3: I mean, the short answer is depends who you ask. But there are two things that do make the United States very unique. The first is that you can talk about stuff that is still pretty much off the table in many other parts of the world, especially in the European countries, still very much off the table. We can, of course, argue about why it is that we had to wait until George Floyd's death to institute all this change, but that's not the point. The point, I think, is now American companies are pushing and they're setting the tone that the rest of the world has to follow. Speaking through the lens of optimism, that's something that's very unique about the American circumstance. Now, with it also comes an openness to dialogue from the consumer. And we are seeing that increase and change every single day. You know, as an anthropologist, what I'm always interested in is the use of language. And I'll give you two words that have traditionally been scary words for Americans, especially in the context of the corporate world, the F word, and I don't mean what you think I mean, (laughs) feminism. And then the B word, black. These are two words that have been avoided in culture. Suddenly now, we find ourselves having more of these conversations than we've ever done before. As a research company, we have been asked to study everything from the changing nature of the American social contract to the changing nature of social justice, its impact on different industries like the food industry. All of this is happening not just because corporations want to do this, but it's happening because consumers want to do this as well every single consumer has incredible power, especially in the United States, to drive change. And this is the perfect example of that.
0: And that actually leads me beautifully to a question that I wanted to ask you, Anton, around the influence of corporations, which is obviously huge on things like policy and consumer adoption of new practices. And obviously, we want it to line up with what consumers want. And we know the data is telling us 60% of people say that they would be more likely to consider a brand if its stance on equality aligned with their own. 50% would stop using a brand if it didn't align with their values. How much of this as a business leader do you weigh up with people's intention and what they desire, what they aspire to versus what they actually find most necessary for their own survival?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. I think as a business person, particularly as a marketer, there's always a gap in what people think and how they act. I think the beautiful part about consumers is that they're always changing. And so you can't look at consumers monolithically. I can tell you that my 21-year-old daughter has very specific, (laughs) I mean, incredibly specific understanding around why she would buy or not buy things. And I can tell you that it is a significant driver in her consumer choice. I can tell you, I have friends who are closer to my age. It's like, yes, I understand that intellectually, but I have more primary reasons why I want to go and engage in a product or a service. And it's much more functional or around efficacy. And again, I tend to think in segments and segmentation. I would say classic marketing response it depends, (laughs) right? (laughs) It depends on who you're talking to, it determines what their value system is, it depends on how much they activate against their value system. And the thing I will say is, and you sort of look at it generationally, and, you know, the younger generations are much more in contact with what they believe. I think there's less of a gap between what they believe and how they act on their beliefs. And I think that's the thing that I think that marketers have to really, really sort of reconcile over time. Now, there's also obviously a theory that says that yes, all that changes until you have kids. (laughs) (laughs) And then things become more functional, more efficacious, more time driven, so and more convenience driven. I think there's clearly some truth to that as well. But I still think that basic orientation around I have a value system. And my value system is so strong that it's going to have maybe a disproportionate impact in terms of how I'm going to consume, why I'm going to consume, and the principles that I use to make choices. I think purpose is real. I think value systems are real. But I do think that there is differences in terms of, again, how how people choose to act on those as well. But I think the first thing we have to do is to understand those things. The second thing we have to do is, how do we make a credible connection between those value systems and how they act against those value systems? And how do we make sure that our products and services fit in the context of that exercise between those consumers? And that, and that that sounds sophisticated and maybe to some extent it is, but I, I think that is the amorphous part of what we do as marketers, which is probably why we hire people like Ujois to help us to understand some of those nuances, because even consumers can't articulate this to us. But that's clearly what's happening underneath the surface.
0: It must be so great to have a Gen Z in the household, you can run little focus groups all the time. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> now, I have three in the household. Oh, my
0: goodness. But they of
2: things a little differently.
0: One of the things that you mentioned there is, you know, once they have kids, I would say even once they get into the workforce and they find that their time is disappearing, it changes who you are. But, you know, Gen Z is currently over 30 percent of the global population and they are thinking and acting differently. It is a truth. And they listen to different voices than their older generations. Ujwal, I'd love to hear your take on this movement, particularly driven by Gen Z and millennials around listening to real voices. So those personalities that are less mainstream, less filtered, more real, more genuine, and more like them.
3: You know, from an anthropological perspective, one of the things we always look at is the amount of influence your own environment has on your value systems. Kids growing up today, they have grown up with a level of diversity, not just of races and people, but of thought that the rest of us could only dream of. That gives them a certain perspective and I think the biggest thing is it gives them a comfort level to ask questions. It's really interesting how difficult us adults find even to ask a question about a topic that we're uncomfortable about. But for the younger generation, it's less because their lived experience is a bit different. And I think that is showing itself in terms of their desire for new ideas, new thought, their desire to be pushed outside of their comfort zone. If somebody's grown up with access to any kind of expertise, that meaning itself is different for somebody who's 17 today. They don't care about an accreditation. They don't care about a PhD. What they care about is that somebody has an idea that's worth listening to.
2: I think about this a lot, particularly over the last several years, is just, you know, what is truth? If there's not a foundation of trust and accreditation, or let's just say that spectrum is broader now in terms of what is real, what is truth, then how do we come to consensus? (laughs) How do we come to an understanding of alignment if the foundation from which we are developing opinions is more amorphous now than it has been in the past. And now that we have a media landscape that can literally put Anton inside of his own eco-chamber if he decides to be there, <laughs> and, and not be exposed to different thought, different perspectives, maybe different facts, whatever facts wow. are. <laughs> so I think that complicates, and I think that is a differentiating factor that maybe you have had in past generations as well.
3: I think you bring up a really critical point one of the developments that we're seeing is that because culture is getting so fragmented, we might get to a place where a politician realizes, hey, I no longer have to follow a specific frame of reference. Because, you know, especially when you look at politics, the reason why it gets so polarized is because the frames are so rigid. Oh, if I'm socially progressive, but I'm fiscally conservative... I can't openly say I'm socially progressive because that's the frame. The mold is still 50 years old and they haven't figured out how to break it. And it's almost like culture has moved on and they're stuck. And because they're stuck, they're propelling a narrative that is no longer relevant. And it creates a divide rather than unite over ideas, shared experiences, even parts of ideas that may have some amount of agreement.
0: I think it's a a really big challenge. So I'd love to hear your take on how you would find a solution to that. Because, you know, when you're seeking truth, usually we lean on hard data or hard facts. But you know, in your profession, that can be manipulated. Yes. And when people are trying to seek out their own truth, what is the solve for the badge of honor that people wear for their identities and their inevitable lean into almost pigeonholing themselves?
3: I'll try to paint a little bit of a picture because in anthropology, we use this concept of symbolic capital to talk about why, as human beings, we make decisions. And it's kind of like saying every decision we make or every idea that we wear is a badge of honor. It carries some amount of symbolic currency. So it's, you know, depending on where we live, there are different amounts of currency associated with different ideas that we hold. Now, the interesting thing is that Because culture has become so fragmented, we can accumulate currency in many ways that might, to the naked eye, appear contradictory. I could be very particular about only buying naturally sweetened, low sugar products for my family when it comes to snacks. But then when it comes to my breakfast, I use a completely different framework. I like my sugary cereal when it comes to breakfast. And I have some justification in my mind. And sometimes we'll have a client say, this doesn't make any sense, like why is the consumer contradicting themselves? And then when we remind them of this idea of where the currency comes from, for whatever reason, maybe because they walk around with the snack, maybe because they offer the snack to somebody else, it's seen at your desk, whatever it is, those contradictions can exist and can coexist. Then the question becomes, what are the different elements of the message, which elements carry more currency and less currency, and how do I prioritize them?
2: I'll just follow up on that, Ojoa, because I couldn't help myself. You know, having worked in a past life for a big cereal company, (laughs) that relationship with that cereal starts very young. Right. When you're at the table, when you're looking at the boxes, when you're reading the back, when you're getting the prizes out of it as well. And so that memory structure is so hardwired and that drives or can disassociate you from logical choice. We talk about how do we build connections with brand? When do those connections start? How do we keep those connections alive in some kind of authentic and modern way and either build memory structures or continue to make those memory structures
0: relevant?
3: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that also contributes to our comfort level with these inherent contradictions in how we behave day to day and occasion to occasion.
0: It's an interesting inflection point as well in the context of health and wellness as a macro trend and sort of what people are calling the passion economy that we're leading into is sort of being led by our aspirations. So health and wellness is evolving away from being this sort of very functional action-reaction type of mindset and much more holistic. So we've been talking about this for over a decade, but people really are wanting more out of what it means to be healthy and happy. They're thinking about their relationship. With their physical performance, their cognitive performance, how they age, how healthy their brain is, how they're feeling emotionally, and their relationship with their environment. Anton, I'm going to start with you. So 69% of Americans say that the pandemic made them rethink their priorities when it comes to how they view being healthy and happy. How are companies rethinking their priorities around health and wellness?
2: Yeah, a really good question, Joe. I think the one thing that companies have the most impact on is their associates. <laughs> and I think the first thing is just making sure that there is a good understanding in terms of what does work fit in the context of our users' sort of pejoratively happiness. How do we make work coexist versus being this separate thing that is there for efficacy and economics only? There's been a lot of conversations around how do we make that balance work, both in the context of time and intensity and rest, but also in the context of making sure that people can make work fit in the fluidity of their entire lives. There's a couple things. One, how do we make work as easy and frictionless as possible? And that goes into make sure that we're taking duplicate tasks out. How do we automate as much as we can? How do we make sure people are spending as much time thinking and creating and producing and try to reduce the administrative burden and the inefficiency of doing your work? That's number one. Number two is just taking a look at our work proposition. We know at Myers that we operate on five principles. They're very universal. We have a lot of organizational consistency and we have ambition around those principles. And we got to make sure those principles are known, that they're clear, and probably most importantly, that they're relevant. Then I think the third thing is just the relationships in terms of how are we engaging with our associates? How does simple human relations work at work You know, so that this is an uplifting, positive experience? versus a means to an economic end. Now, don't get me wrong, we obviously have economic means and economic objectives. I think we're focusing more on the how versus just the objective.
0: And I think a lot of companies are focusing on what you mentioned before around being relevant and particularly being relevant to what people, what workers of America want from their work life, dare I say it, balance. And I'm going to ask this question of Ujwal because I don't want to put you on the spot, Anton, but I feel like at the moment there's a lot of conversation around this disconnect between what people want from their work-life situation, particularly around flexibility and fluidity, versus the sort of stalemate, I guess, that's happening with companies being set in the traditional way of doing things. Why do we get caught in this trap of being set to our traditions And how can we progress beyond that to be more flexible and more adaptable through disruption?
3: It's a great question. At this point, we work with about 139 companies. Majority of them, we do this session where I show this diagram, I draw this big circle, and I say, look, this is a circle of your sphere of knowledge. Here's the problem, your decision destination. It doesn't lie within the circle, it actually lies outside the circle. So you actually have to jump over this void that we call the zone of indecision, the zone of overthinking everything. That leap is the hard part. The question then becomes, okay, who starts? And the only way to achieve that is to make small measurable gains a step at a time. It's not going to be a big leap immediately, and it's the only way it's going to work. It's about those small steps in the right direction that eventually leads us somewhere meaningful.
0: American culture also is built on innovation and ingenuity. And particularly recently, we've seen this huge boom in innovative thinking and startups in particular, coming up with new solutions to problems and meeting consumer needs. How are big companies reacting to this, Anton? And what is the best approach for a company that's been around for a long time?
2: Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I'm sitting here laughing because I love his analogy that the answer is over the divide. I process that as disruption. And I'd say the hardest thing for large companies to do is to disrupt, because disruption creates risk. And when we have risk (laughs) or changes in your standard deviation of outcomes, that has economic impact. Now, that gets down to a sort of basic fundamental set of principles. Risk is fine, as long as you can overcome the risk, right? And so, to me, it is a function of how do companies think about risk? and how do they put processes in place to obviate the risk but still go towards getting an inordinate return and i think that's the thing that companies actually battle with the risk is like okay how do i get the rest of my x thousands of people to actually get there some of this stuff is real a lot of this stuff is imagined a lot of it is tradition a lot of it is perception that's the stuff that gets people in the way from getting to a destination at a pace that's necessary for them to do what they need to do. My job is to make sure that I take those barriers out of the organization. So if there is an obvious and clear and well-articulated destination that we have all the choices and the resource sets and the strategies and the execution of plans to get us there with the least amount of friction and the highest pace possible, that is what reduces risk. But that's hard to do in an organization. And I think for those large organizations that are able to do that, they have figured out the divide back to what Ujwala said. It's like they recognize that the answer is outside of, quote, unquote, the system. And they have figured out mechanisms to manage that without blowing the system up. (laughs) I always tell people, look, we're in constant transformation. (laughs) Right? We don't go and transform and stop and then go to a steady state. I don't believe in steady states. I think we're always in some form of transformation. It's just whether it's more intense or less intense. The more we're able to gear our organizations to understand that, hopefully to be inspired by that, but probably more importantly, being able to manage that, I think that's what's going to determine success.
0: Another question related to that. We are in a constant state of transformation, and we spoke a lot at the start of the episode around the change that's happening in the country and in the culture of America, and the change that has to happen in a lot of corporations. So how do you reconcile all of that with retaining who you are, and I mean who you are as an employee, but also as a company and what you were created for?
2: I think the first thing to do is to have a really clear articulation of who you are. Obviously, that evolves over time, you build new skills, new capabilities, but it's always a core to every company, it's a core to every concept. The trick is, how do you maintain that core and make sure that core is relevant over time? I'm fortunate to work for a private company, and so I think we have a really clear understanding around who we are. I think we've shown an opportunity and a predisposition to evolve over time, not only around who we are, but what we decide to participate in economically. And I think the more intentional you are, I think you increase your odds of doing both, having a level of authenticity, both internally and externally, but also evolving to make sure that your economic model survives and thrives.
3: You know, the fact that the meaning or the purpose itself is a moving target and must evolve as culture evolves. I think you're absolutely right. That's the hardest part. One of the companies we work with in the retail space, they have a statement that defines their underlying purpose. And every year, When we restart our engagement with them, the first project we do with them is just studying what that means. And every year there's some subtle changes, some evolving changes. And then we go and meet with senior leadership and we just talk about how much that target has moved and in what direction. And I think there's something phenomenal about creating a culture that says, here's what we mean by who we are, but we have to be open to the fact that that may change every year. And we got to keep evolving our definition with the changing requirements of culture. This also goes back to the earlier point we were making as we started this. Consumers are now so much more open to talking about issues and topics that they weren't as open about even a few years ago. And as that's going to continue happening, the requirements will continue to change. If a company says, hey, our purpose is to give the consumer joy. What joy means to us in 2019 is different from what it means in 2021, and it's going to be different in 2023.
0: Yeah, and context is king, as you said at the start of the call as well. The other question I had was a question for both of you around relevance, really, going back to that point. So a company needs to stay on top of what is most relevant culturally and for its consumers. At a slightly higher level around the company purpose, but then at the same time, we're usually trying to play catch up with our innovation. And in particular in the US, what's noticeable is the gap to the US and the rest of the world around innovation in um, particularly sustainability and climate action, climate change. Here, this is something where we notice that it's relevant for consumers, it's culturally important, it's individually important for people. People are starting to take more individual action, although household waste is still the biggest problem in relation to what's actually adding up here. However, companies are a little bit slower to react to these things. Going back to my question around playing catch-up. Why is it that the US is so in tune with being progressive and being bold and adventurous and being innovative, but it's so far behind on certain innovation areas like sustainability?
2: First of all, America is full of anomalies. <laughs> this, this may be one of them. There's a couple of things. One, you know, we're still having political conversations around <laughs> whether we have an issue or not. And so if your system that can help give energy and passion and resources towards changing your outcomes is still having a discussion around whether we have an issue, (laughs) then that means that you haven't put the kind of resources in place to make sure you have the kinds of systems to help alleviate the issue. The interesting part is consumers get it. (laughs) <laughs> they get it because they're seeing it, they're living it, right? I would say in most consumers' minds, like, okay, I'm not having the conversation that the politicians are having. I see it. I feel it. Whether I believe it or whether I have a value system around it, I have problems accessing whether I can do anything about it. You know, we still in the United States, we don't have the best recycling infrastructure in the world. We have probably one of the worst. We're still trying to build it. So even as a consumer, if I wanted to do something, maybe even do something more aggressive in terms of how I live, how I process my waste. It's hard. <laughs> right. I have to put thought and intent and energy behind it. Like, it's not easy. And you guys know in other countries, it's quite easy, quite expected. It. it does say something about our institutions about right? whether our institutions are serving the greater good. If you assume the environment is a greater good, I do. I would say we're not doing a good job of that. Because we're still having conversations. So I, I do think it starts at that institutional, maybe political level. And then how does the infrastructure and the opportunity to act against it sort of now get down to societal level and, every, and everyday actions?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. One of the challenge innovation departments have is when they size opportunities around spaces like these in the United States. They realize that, you know, compared to the mainstream audience, the audience that is proactively thinking about the environment is comparatively smaller. You know, usually the pressure from the organization and from senior leadership is that, hey, let's not waste our time and energy on ideas that are not big enough because we're a big corporation. We need to invest in ideas that will yield in the long term. I come at this through the lens of empathy because if I were an innovation leader, this would be sort of the day-to-day challenge, which is if I wait too long, my competitors are going to lead. On the other hand, if I take action early, then how do I show senior leadership that we need to be patient in building something out over time? The other part of it is that the ESG part of the organization is detached from the innovation brand part of the organization. So as a result, even though we may see an opportunity where an organization can actually make a difference, let's say in certain neighborhoods, in certain areas by collaborating with public entities to bring new solutions to life, They can't do it that easily because the two parts of the organization don't necessarily connect with one another. They don't use the same research, the same insights, the same ideas. And as a result, there's not as much of a coordination in terms of why is it that we can't make money by building, let's say, a new brand and a new set of products, but also do good with our ESG initiatives and combine the two. Why is that not possible? And it is increasingly happening. I don't mean to be excessively critical here. But we're still far away from that being a true reality. And I think, Anton, to your point, in the United States, we don't have the benefit of the institutional framework like, let's say, Germany or France does. We don't have that benefit. So as a result, it's more up to private entities, more up to private individuals to make the difference. And I think you started with this point, which is that the consumer understands this now. So I think now we're finally getting to an inflection where organizations will say, you know, I'm not going to wait around for the public sphere to sort its issues out. Maybe we need to think innovatively to solve this problem end to end.
2: I would add, I think, and this is just a space to look at, I'll take it over my former industry in the investment industry. Look, you have investment theses now revolving around ESG. And, and you know, depending on how you cut that and so on and so forth, you would say that those who are really focused on actually doing things They're generating excess return, right? Now, we're early days on that. But now, maybe the incentives, at least for publicly held companies, let me sort of say that now the incentives could add up because now the capital markets are making an economic assessment based on something that now is more ESG-driven.
0: Also, it's worthwhile pointing out, I did sort of spotlight on sustainability, but we know that the power comes from combining trends and combining consumer benefits. And I feel like that is a great way to solve a lot of problems is combining our efforts and our resources, which leads me to my last question. When you think about the future of America out to 2025, 2030, you know, one of the things that I'm most excited about, the shift that I'm seeing is this collaboration and pool of resourcing, great minds coming together, like in this podcast. Uh What is the one thing that you are most excited about when it comes to looking further out into the multiple futures of America and where things are headed?
3: I might take this opportunity to bring a pessimistic idea forward because I think it's an important one social cohesion. We just recently did a study on how the social contract in the United States is changing. So the nature of the relationship between human beings, citizens, governments, corporations, institutions. And one of the biggest pieces we found is this belief, and this is 35% of the adult population now firmly believes that social cohesion is fundamentally broken in the country. And what that really means is we struggle to build empathy for each other. We struggle to understand each other, build empathy for each other, and all we're doing is just othering each other rather than trying to figure out how we can at least understand why somebody comes from a certain place. One of the fundamental reasons for this from the consumer's lens is the fact that there's a complete lack of equity. This goes back to issues about racial justice. It goes back to issues about environmental justice. All of that is part of this. But fundamentally, there's this belief that social cohesion is broken, and it's an important belief. And I think as we look to the future, I think what we're finding more and more is that organizations are realizing they have to play a role in this because they've got so much at stake and they have to figure out how to play a role in a meaningful way to take my pessimism and convert it into some optimism. The one thing that somebody pointed out when I was going through this social cohesion analysis was they said, if 35% of the adult population now feels that social cohesion is lacking, isn't that the first step to getting somewhere positive? First recognize there's a problem. That's the first step to a more optimistic outcome in the future. What is inherently American about the culture is that there is an eternal optimism to everything.
0: Nice turnaround, Uchwal. And in the recent research around the Fourth of July, you know, seven in ten Americans were saying that they are very proud to be Americans. So you're starting from a point of pride and of wanting to find a common ground. And I say you, I mean we now as an honorary honorary <laughs> American.
2: Yeah, I think for me is I'm an eternal optimist, and I think what I see is America becoming more tribal in every sense of the word. And this has been my hope maybe for my entire life, just sort of given my history. I'm hoping that there is some inflection point in the next five years or so that says, look, at the end of the day, we pretty much want the same things. I'll put it in the American context, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) The freedom to do those things in a way that we see fit. And so I'm hoping that we come to this conclusion that in order for us to get that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's actually easier to do it together versus, back to Ujwal's words, othering one another. Matter of fact, I don't think it's mathematically possible unless we actually work together. Companies can play a unique part in helping to push that. For companies who have a pretty specific objective over time, which is A, to survive, B, to serve as many customers and consumers as possible, and to do it in some kind of sustainably profitable way, There's only a few ways to get there, (laughs) and that is trying to capture as many available consumers, available households as possible, which inherently is a much more diverse and multidimensional exercise than most.
0: A huge thank you to Anton and Ujwal for joining us in what was, I hope you agree, a very deep and meaningful conversation. What's really striking about the start of this decade for America is that it lines up with a real turning point for the country, the fight for justice, the search for common ground amongst division, the redefinition of truth, the mending of cultural fractures. This reminds me of a Hemingway quote, The world breaks everyone, and afterward many are strong in broken places. We look to America not just for what it does for itself and its own people, but how it can influence the rest of the world. Yes, by its sheer size and influence, but also by its will. For workers, business leaders, brand owners in the US, this means so much. In a lot of ways, America is not just the center of the world's hopes and aspirations. As Anton said, it's the heart and soul. Stay with us for the other shows in the Future of series as we explore the key themes influencing Europe, China, and emerging markets. I hope you stick around. And until then, this is Joe. Stay curious. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Weekly, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjares, with editing and sound design by Matha DeLeon.